This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. It's time for the May episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm news editor Ezie Pearson, and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later, Ian will be telling you our top tip for what to see in this month's night sky. But for now, I'm going to take a look back at an event that happened 101 years ago on the 26th of April. Two scientists named Harlow Shapley and Herbert Curtis got together to discuss one of the most pressing issues in astronomy at the time. Just how big is our galaxy, the Milky Way, and how far away is it from its neighbours? A hundred years ago this May, the pair of them published a paper discussing the views that were in that debate. Um, So what actually was this event? It's since become known as something called the Great Debate. It took place at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Um, And that paper that was released 100 years ago in May was in the Bulletin of National Research Council. But what were they actually discussing? It's ultimately about what what they call spira nebulae, isn't it? Mm. Um, And whenever I was first sort of looking at really proper sort of like historical um, astronomy, um, specifically the uh, Great Leviathan at Parsonstown, you know, um, Lord Ross's um, huge telescope in uh, Burcastle in, in, in the Irish Midlands. Yeah, that's absolutely and, huge. I know. <laughs> and reading about, you know, some of his observations, and he kept, they kept talking about, like, nebulae, when I was like, but don't they mean galaxies? And this is like, you know, mm. like years ago before I could have understood what the, what the problem was. And, and the issue was that they had known about these sort of fuzzy patches in the sky for hundreds of years. I think it was like like the 1700s, they started like sort of cataloging nebulae, but that's what they called them. They called them nebulae. Um, And they didn't yet So in the the 17th century, uh, 1610, I think it was, Galileo invented the telescope. And then it took about 100 years for it to kind of progress to the the stage where they could actually really begin to see these, what they at the time called spiral nebulae um, and what we now know as spiral galaxies. Indeed. And that's that, that's essentially well, that's that's part of what the the great debate was about, really, wasn't it? It's like what are these what are these mm. spiral nebulae? And ultimately, the great debate was sort of saying, how big is the Milky Way, and and is the Milky Way it? Is the Milky Way basically the universe, or is the universe much bigger? And are these um, spiral nebulae actually? Um, what was the word? It was uh, Emmanuel Kant. Island Kim- universes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which was uh, coined by Immanuel Kant, I think, in um, the 18th century, and he, the, the German philosopher, and he, he also believed that there were sort of extragalactic uh, entities. But yeah, that, that's ultimately how the how the Great Debate came about, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And there were two two astronomers who are kind of on opposing sides. Um, they, of course, weren't the only people who held this views. There was kind of 
one of those things in, in any facet of science, every scientist is going to have their own unique take on exactly where it is. But broadly speaking, there were kind of two two churches. Um, and Harlow Shapley, he was of the opinion that these spiral nebula were quite um, were quite small, but were quite close to the Milky Way. Um, there is a sort of misconception that he thought that these these nebulae were actually inside the Milky Way. He didn't. He he. The, uh, even then, they knew that the the nebulas were probably the galaxies were probably outside of our own Milky Way. Um, but he came to this conclusion. You know, they, he was an astronomer. He was a scientist. This was all based on the the information they had available during the day. Um, and so he'd looked at globular clusters. So globular clusters are kind of like these big balls of stars that hang around. They're they're, they're smaller than a galaxy, but they're they're still quite a lot of um, stars in them. Um, they tend to be found around the outskirts of bigger galaxies. Um, and by looking at these, he found Cepheid variable stars. Um, and Cepheid variable stars are really interesting because they they are variable, so they change how bright they are over time. And exactly how bright they are and that period with which it changes depends on how exactly bright they are. So how absolute their absolute brightness Um and if you know how something, how bright something actually is and how bright something looks to you here on Earth, you can compare those two things and work out how far away they are. Um, so Cepheid variables are great at judging distances when you're looking at things like globular clusters. Um, and these measurements found out that these globular clusters were about 200,000 light years away. Um, and so when you looked at those and compared them to where they thought spiral nebulae were they they got to this kind of the the spiral nebulae must be pretty close by on the same sort of part of it <laughs> yeah no it's um it it's interesting because um what you were saying there about um Shapley was that uh there is that misconception that that it was, mm. that, that it was solely about that the debate was solely about um are these galaxies within the within the milky way or are they are they nebulae within the Milky Way or are the galaxies out with the, the Milky yeah. Way? And there was an interesting um, passage that I'd found from, from his paper, from Shapley's paper. And he sort of said, um, even, even if spirals fail as galactic systems, there may be elsewhere in space stellar systems equal to or greater than ours, as yet unrecognized and possibly quite beyond the power of existing optical devices and preset measuring, present me- measuring scales. Um, and also that he wasn't actually arguing that the, the spiral nebulae where we're inside the Milky Way, but that they were sort of nearby. So we said um, that they were not members of our galactic system. I prefer to believe that they are not composed of stars at all, but are truly nebulous objects. So that that was really the difference between the the debate. But I think that the more you sort of look into the, the great debate, the more you sort of realize that on paper it looks like Curtis won, but actually hmm. probably no one no one won, or like science won. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was also Herbert Curtis, who I should say that um, Shapley was from the Mount Wilson Observatory. Um, Herbert Curtis was his opponent uh, from the University of Virginia and the Lick Observatory. And he believed that these uh, spiral nebula were were very large, but very, very far away. Um, so far away that a lot of um, astronomers just kind of refused to believe that these distances could exist because when 
I don't know if any of you have ever spent any time converting, you know, like how far away 300,000 light years is into kilometers, but it does mean you have to go and like have a little sit down and a cup of tea <laughs> when <laughs> you just realize exactly how big the, the, the universe is. Um, so I can understand why they might be a little bit reticent to believe that. Yeah. Um, he thought the Milky Way was a lot smaller, only around uh, 30,000 light years across. So that's a tenth of what Shapley was saying uh, and that the sun was at its centre. Um, but he he believed that these spiral nebulae were other galaxies, other star collections like the Milky Way, very large, very far away. Um, and that view is what we now know to be true. Um, these spiral nebulae are spiral galaxies. They do look just like the Milky Way. Um, and in fact, he saw quite a lot of features in these spiral galaxies um, that he attributed to the Milky Way. So, for instance, our um, he could see that these spiral galaxies had rings of dust around the middle. Um, occulting material is what he called it. Uh, basically, that just means dust and light can't get through the dust. So the light, you see it as a dark band across galaxies. And in our own Milky Way, he suggested, well, maybe that's why we haven't seen any of these spiral nebulae along the kind of Milky Way, because that's our plane looking through our own galaxy. There must be a bunch of dust and it's cutting out our view to further away. Um, so he got that bit right, that spiral galaxies are far away. But Shapley was much more on the money with regards to um, how big the Milky Way was. He still overestimated a bit. He was about estimated the Milky Way was twice the size it was. Um, but he also shapely said the sun was on the outskirts of the Milky Way. And we now know that our our sun, Sol, is is somewhere on the um the Orion spiral arm on the outskirts of, of our Milky Way. Um, and so they both got things right and they both got things wrong. Yeah, I think sort of um Ultimately, I think it was a pretty sort of um, amiable debate, you know, as mm. as they are, you know, it, it, it's it's not like it's sort of I'm I'm right, you're wrong, you know, it's, it's sort of it's uh, sort of um, well, as I said, amiable de amiable debate and sort of um, d discussing the matters and and sort of both of them um, came up with ideas that did did reshape how we think about the universe. I mean, on, on paper, you'd think that that Curtis had won, as he said, but I also read that. Um, that was potentially because he was like an experienced speaker and there, there being no mm. microphones in the auditorium. Yeah. Both speakers had to sort of uh, project their voice. So ultimately it maybe just came down to who appeared to be more um, convincing uh, on the day. But I, I, I am, I was, when I first started researching the great debate, I was sort of surprised to hear that um, Curtis was so much older because, mm. because you sort of think that the uh, crux of Curtis's argument was, 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 was probably correct or at, at least more accurate. Um, considering what we know today you sort of think well he must have been the younger one he must have been the sort of younger radical guy but that wasn't <laughs> the case at all no it wasn't um it 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 was kind of you know thinking outside the box but this sort of what i remember back when i was at um university and and learning like there was basically being taught how to be a good scientist um this was sort of held up as one of those times of like this is what scientific debate should be you know, it's not going at each other or personal attacks. It's just basically like saying, this is my evidence. This is your evidence. Let's have a look at them um, and, and try and work out what's true. Mm. Um, 
and as is often the case, it's like some some views have some truth in them, other views have other truth in them, and it's you work together and eventually get more um, detail and observations, and evidence comes to light. Uh, so, and sometimes you know evidence that you previously had gets proved wrong. So, for instance, on Shapley's side of the argument, um, which was the galaxies are small and close by, um, he had a colleague called Adrian van Manen, who had measured the rotation of these spiral nebula. Um, he measured how fast he thinks they are spinning, because uh, galaxies, as we now know, are spinning. Um, and he found that if his measurements were correct, then they would be rotating faster than the speed of light uh, if they were huge and remote, which is, as we know, impossible. You can't go faster than the speed of light. So they have to be closer and smaller by to account for those rotation mm -hmm. speeds that he saw. Um, it later turned out that his measurements that he'd, he'd made and that Shapley had based some of his arguments on weren't right. He'd, he'd made a mistake. It, it hadn't measured it properly. No one else was able to, to replicate those results. So it's just that kind of, you have to keep looking and keep observing and find out what the truth is. Don't we also know now, though, that his, um, his sort of claim to have been able to observe the rotations of those galaxies, that, that's, that's not possible or, or, or it wasn't possible then? So, so what yeah. was it that he saw? Because like a, I, I, you know, I seriously doubt like he, like he just made it up. He must have just made like a, real, a real mistake. Yeah, it's what people do. Yeah. Um, or you, you mistake something or you... I'm not 100% sure if it was ever discovered exactly what his mistake was. Um, but, you know, people forget to account for stuff all the time. Mm. You know, um, like when people discovered the this is actually one that goes the other way around but um when people discovered the cmb the cosmic microwave background radiation um it took them ages because they kept trying to discount stuff that was based on earth and it didn't occur to them that there might be something else out there that was making this kind of like background hiss um and they they had to discount the pigeons that were living in the horn um <laughs> with unfortunately quite terminal ways but for the pigeons involved but they um you know it, it there's like there's hundreds and hundreds of things that come into play when you're looking at various different aspects of astronomy and it's just you know humans aren't perfect <laughs> occasionally you miss something or you forget something or yeah you don't quite have the eyepiece in the right place or you've accidentally put in the wrong filter and not realized it so there's those are things that can happen. Yeah, I mean, and, and also even though sort of, um, you know, Curtis was proven to be um, most accurate in terms of what he thought the spiral nebulae were, um, that's, that's almost sort of down to a mistake on his part because he thought, the, he yeah. thought the Milky Way was really small. He thought it was only like 30,000 light years across. So it was sort of easy for him to conceive that they might be beyond the Milky Way. Yeah. So it's, but he, he was like, Shapley was, was more accurate in his, in how big he thought the Milky Way was. So it's almost like Curtis got the right answer, but he got the right answer by the wrong method. By just, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of failing your way to success. Um, so yeah, Curtis thought that the, the Milky Way was 30,000 light years across. Um, the actual value is about 106,000 light years across. Um, so four times larger than that. 
which is quite a big difference. Um, Shapley was actually closer than Curtis was in terms of the size of the Milky Way. Um, Though I should state that it's it's incredibly difficult to measure the size of something when you're inside it. Yeah. Um, it's like if you're you're like trying to work out how wide a building is and you're standing outside of it, you can take a look at it and like measure the distance like like using your eyes, you can do quite a good gauge. If however, you know, like you're sitting in a cupboard under the stairs. In the dark. In the dark, <laughs> you can't judge how big it is. Like you might be able to go, it's like, okay, well, if it's got a cupboard under the stairs this size, then maybe it's a house this size. But you know, you're 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 making assumptions and you're taking guesses. Um and yeah. it's a bit like that with trying to measure the Milky Way. Um we've gotten better at it over the years. Uh the Gaia satellite, which is currently measuring the positions of the billion stars in the galaxy, is gonna help us do that a lot. But it's 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 tricky. Um and it's taken us a long time to kind of get to that degree of accuracy or what we think is that degree of accuracy <laughs> uh the other um measurement that curtis um calculated was um the distance from the milky way to the andromeda galaxy which is the nearest mm. big galaxy and uh, he thought it was five hundred thousand light years away and this is where sort of the next part of the story comes in because um an astronomer called edwin hubble who mm-hmm. obviously doesn't really need that much introduction calculated <laughs> to be three times further away um, we now know it was, in fact, five times further away. So the Andromeda Galaxy is 2.5 million light years away. But Hubble managed to get the, the distance a bit more accurate by saying it was 1.5 um, million light years away. And that then this is where um, see if you had uh, variable stars come in again, because it was he mm-hmm. who basically f- photographed the Andromeda Galaxy and was able to... Um, yeah. Was, was able to sort of more accurately calculate the distance using these these standard candles, as they're known. Yes. He, he managed to show, like take a photo which showed that there were individual stars in the Andromeda Nebulae, uh, um, the Andromeda Galaxy. Um, And he couldn't see every single star. Like a lot of it was still just a kind of like glowy blur, but he could pick out a couple of the few brighter ones, uh, particularly towards the edges. Um, And one of these happened to be a Cepheid variable so he could measure the distance. Um, It's still not easy, you know, trying to, measure the light curve of something that's several <laughs> several million light years away <laughs> with the technology available in the 1920s because um, he made this discovery in October 1923 yeah unbelievable but apparently he because um, obviously the, the great debate had been over was like two, two years bef- prior to that and Hubble actually wrote to Shapley and he said uh, he wrote him a letter in 1924 and he said um You'll be interested to hear that I have found a Cepheid variable in the Andromeda Nebula, Andromeda Galaxy, enclosed as a copy of the light curve, which, rough as it is, shows the Cepheid characteristics in, un- in an unmistakable fashion. And Shapley apparently said, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. Um, <laughs> his version of the, the universe went out the window. So Yeah. And um, Curtis apparently said, uh, I have always held this view uh, and the recent results by Hubble and variables and spirals seem to make theory doubly certain. So sort of um, quite quite humble mm. in his sort of yeah. um, relative victory there. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was. It does seem to be, you know, kind of like, as you said, it was a very, like it gets told as like this, the great debate between these two people. But even if you actually look at the event, it wasn't really even technically a debate. Like mm. they didn't get to respond to each other. It was just... 
One person got 40 minutes to speak, the other person got 40 minutes to speak, and then they had some questions and they weren't actually responding to each other's arguments. Um, so that was one of the reasons why they released the paper, which is 100 years ago this May, um, which yeah. is why we are. That's why we are talking about it right now. Um, I did find um, an interesting, there's, where was the website? It was uh, the National Academy of Sciences has some really good um, material uh, on the Great mm. Debate. And one of the things they have is a scanned PDF of the, the press release that went out to journalists talking about what the, about this, this amazing debate that was come up. And it, it's headlined, uh, how many universes are there? <laughs> um, which, which is quite funny because, um, as you, you know, you, you and I get press releases, you know, tens of press releases every day and they're always trying to catch yeah. you, your attention they're always trying to like you know talk about star wars or how some stars yeah. like star wars or something like that they're always trying to hook and this is this is a great hook isn't it how many universes are there um, yeah and it says uh, this evening two california astronomers will discuss the size of the universe and present their views as to whether or not there's only one or several universes before the national academy of sciences which is now in session in washington and one interesting bit is mm. it says uh, Dr. Shapley's views will be followed by the discussion of Dr. Haber D. Curtis of the Lake Observatory, who will defend the older view that the Milky Way is approximately of the dimensions suggested by Newcomb, about 30,000 light years in diameter, with the spiral nebulae regarded as very probably individual galaxies of island universes like ours. Thus, there may be a million other universes, each having um, three, three billion stars. Inhabit inhabitants of these numerous universes would see our Milky Way as a spiral nebula. That's just, just really cool. Just just thinking back to that, you know, like all, all that discovery lay ahead, and and, mm. and and you know this this was the press release that was going out to sort of gauge uh, journalists and, and sort of pique, pique their interest. It's, it's fascinating reading stuff like that. Yeah, and it also again, it's this kind of it shows you just how much even like the terminology has changed because you know we've spent this entire podcast going nebulae, which are also galaxies, <laughs> but they called them nebulae, and then then they're talking about universes, whereas for us, you know. We have, like, for, for us, the universe is basically everything that is within space. Um, and then you get into various other theories with multiverses where there are other universes. But, like, everything that we can encounter here is our universe. And it's, yeah, it's just this kind of trying to get your head around of just, like, what a different view of the universe and the world that we live in was back then. Because, mm. you know, I've always grown up knowing that it's like, oh, yes, I live on planet Earth and it goes around the sun and it's in the Milky Way, which is a galaxy. And then there are other galaxies, um, <laughs> you know, got taught that at school. And it's just this kind of like how much of a shift it must have been for the people around there to just say it's like, oh, no, like this is just one of untold billions. Um <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's it's tiny in the grand scheme of things. That just must have been such a, a shift in people's imaginations. I but I mean, e e even in our lifetime, I remember at school um, being taught that the most likely scenario for the end of the universe was that um, the universe is expanding, but the expansion is slowing and it will start contracting. And we know that that's not the case because of dark energy. And the mm. and of course, the other thing that we were taught at school, well, I certainly was, Ezzy, is um, that that Pluto was a planet. You know, oh yeah, that one. That one is still up for debate. If you talk to the New Horizons team, <laughs> which 
sort of reminds me of that um another great debate that um occurred obviously over the past few years was um i don't know if you saw it but it was because it, it was live streamed on youtube you know as as, as things are it was uh, between um <laughs> yeah uh, alan stern who was the principal investigator of the new horizons mission to plato and ron eckers mm-hmm. of the international astronomical union and, th- and that was a debate about um should plato be a planet and it was sort of the same as the as the great debate you know they, they had a certain amount of time allocated to sort of put their view across and that's fascinating um if you if you just Google that, you know, Pluto debate, Alan Stern, Ron Eckers, you'll find the, the, mm. the two-hour video on YouTube. It's absolutely fascinating. But it, it, sort, of remi- it sort of reminds me of that. Um, yeah. Thinking back to the, the great debate and, and what, it, what it might have been like at the time. Uh, so, yeah, as I said, it's it's part of what science is, is kind of standing up for, you know, like, here is my evidence and here's what I think. Um, and somebody else coming back and, and, and having these debates and these conversations. Um, but always, always looking kind of, Basing it on evidence and what you can see, that's that's kind of half of like what science has always been. It's it's making those those debates. So looking at the evidence, supporting your argument for it, listening to other people's, and kind of trying to find your way to the truth. Uh, and if any of the listeners at home would like to find out more about the Great Debate of 1920, then pick up the May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, um, where we have an article all about it there. And now it's time for this month's stargazing tip. Uh, in May, we welcome the return of the planet Venus to the evening sky. Um, and as the month progresses, see if you can spot the planet just after sunset. It will appear as a bright evening star-like object about 20 minutes after the sun sets. Um, but you will need a pretty flat and clear west-northwest to northwest horizon. Um, and it may initially seem like a bit of a challenge to spot, but once you've seen it, um, you, you won't be able to miss it. Um, and I find a good thing to do is, if you're unsure, is um, to download a, a stargazing app um, or to your to your smartphone or tablet, and that'll help you spot it. And it's it's not cheating, honestly. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we all need a little bit of help. Um, but this this does come with a word of warning. Uh, make sure not to look directly at the sun with the naked eye, um, as doing so could seriously harm your your vision. Um, but that's that's just a sort of um, a safety tip that we have to give because you're observing so close to sunset. Um, just just wait until the sun is safely set and as darkness falls, you'll be able to spot Venus shining brightly in the evening sky. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about The Great Debate in the May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also guide you through the best globular clusters to see this season, give you a beginner's guide to using a DSLR camera for astronomy, and take a tour down the coast to see the celestial wonders that can be found there. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skynightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider.